Hi, I'm Tessie Ojo. I'm the Chief Executive of the Diana Ward. Hello, I'm Polly Neat and I'm Chief Executive of Shelter. And together we are hosting a mini-series on the word privilege. So thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. I'm just going to kick off by really introducing ourselves and then just give you a bit of context into how we came about this conversation about privilege. So my name is Tessie Ojo and I'm the Chief Executive of the Diana Award. Polly, I'll hand over to you and then we can... Um, So I'm co-hosting this podcast with Tessie and I'm Polly Neat. I'm the Chief Executive of Shelter and we're going to let our guests Sarah introduce herself in a minute. Tessie's going to just talk a bit about why we had this idea of this podcast. So over the summer or before the summer, as, as everyone would know, we had a moment where a young man was killed in America and a young man called George Floyd. And that led to protests across the globe, including here in the UK. What was useful, I suppose, about that moment was firstly, it came at a moment where all of us as a nation were home dealing with COVID which meant that we we saw this video of this brutal murder of this young man and really allowed all of us begin to, especially people who of colour, begin to reflect on our lives and how we feel that and our experiences of being Black in the UK. I suppose that led us to, I'm lucky or we're lucky to be part of a a group of chief execs who actually began to meet um, at the very start of lockdown to firstly talk about COVID and its impact on our organizations, but also to create some form of support bubble. But I suppose also what happened was through this Black Lives Matter moment, it allowed us as a group of chief execs to come together and really begin to talk about what does it mean? What does this mean for us? It, you know, what does this mean for our staff, our members of staff who are from a Black community? And how do we, you know, the one thing that brought us into this sector was to tackle inequality. And I think the one thing that really stood out for all of us as leaders was that we were faced with that same inequality existing, not just in our own society, but also in our organization. So that led us to various conversations. We are jointly agreeing that actually what we should do is to explore the issue of privilege and what does that mean for us, especially as charity leaders. That's a long intro, so I'll let you (laughs) (laughs) introduce yourself and talk a little bit more about about this. Yeah, so I'm Sarah Hughes and I'm the Chief Exec at the Centre for Mental Health. We are a mental health organisation that is really focused on equality and justice in mental health. We don't provide services, but we're a not-for-profit think tank. You know, we often sit in darkened rooms with data and research to try and make sense of what's going on in the world. I have to tell you, over the last three years while I've been in this post, that's been really interesting in relation to the whole issue of inequality. That's been our primary focus. And I would have to acknowledge that the last six months has been particularly painful and difficult to, to do this work. I mean, it's been tough. I think it's quite interesting that I felt that making ourselves a bit vulnerable actually enabled us then to share some vulnerability in relation to Black Lives Matter and how that had made us all feel. And certainly for me, it was a really pretty shaming realisation that I had dropped a ball that I absolutely had no excuse to have dropped. 
and that the only reason I could possibly have dropped that ball, by which I'm talking about making shelter an anti-racist organisation, and I'd even consciously thought about being a feminist organisation, and the only way you can even talk about dropping that ball is if you have the privilege to be able to drop the ball, if you know what I mean. And just even just sort of admitting that in a group of CEOs, it was good to be able to be that honest and vulnerable. And I guess that's part of what we wanted to be able to do with these conversations was to try and say to our colleague CEOs in the sector, you know, we have to admit this stuff and get to grips with it. Otherwise, we're not going to move forward. Do you, do you know what I mean, Sarah? Well, completely, because it feels like almost I was minded of the truth and reconciliation trials, you know, that sort of sense yeah. of you have to absolutely face up to what's happened before you can move on. And, and I think that, you know, my response to the events, the murder of George Floyd and um, Brenna Taylor have, have always been sort of, you know, a distress, you know, one of complete shock and shame and over the summer I think that I really related to that point around how the hell have we allowed this to happen how you know how how we got here you know I personally had always highly rated myself as somebody who was anti-racist and almost got to a point where I didn't even have to question it and I think that's the that's where my shame comes from which is a complacency and a the privilege of complacency that you know the sense for me of thinking you know well I've nailed this stuff and if I'd nailed this stuff in my own mind then the impact in my organization you know what it looks like what it feels like would be different there's a tr absolute truth in that the question for me becomes how and why did we drop that ball because I absolutely know that I have spent a large portion of my life and my professional life shouting very loudly about these issues but I do know I, I fell into a, a bit of a kind of nothing's going to go back to a place where people's lives are at risk at that level, surely. Mm. And then despite the evidence that that wasn't the case, and then an absolutely brutal murder in front of all of our eyes, you know, there's no hiding from that. It's um, a deep shame that we must hold mm. and acknowledge and talk about. I want to, interesting you use the word and I know you, it feels that like you've used it about three or four times, the word shame. I want to explore that a little bit because I hear that and I've heard people use the word shame a few times. And I think there is something about that acknowledgement of we have failed. How do we move people on? How do we move on from that shame? You know, one of the things that you know I thought about before we were going to talk today was... I'm very aware that by holding on to that shame and by talking about it, it's very easy for that to feel like and to be perceived that you're centering yourself in the problem. Some of that, and I don't know whether this is what you're alluding to, um, Tessie, but some of that ongoing discussion about my shame is somehow taking away from the reality of actually what this racism and violence has done to you and my you know my black brothers and sisters around the world and 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 so I think that that's actually a really important point at which we can't center ourselves in this problem but how do we take responsibility for it and I think that's the, that's the dilemma I think as leaders it's important that we're accountable for not just going on about how bad we feel but for actually changing things and I think you know we have to be accountable to our black colleagues for actually moving things forward. In the charity sector, I think we're good at thinking, we're good at virtue, and we're actually also good at beating ourselves up. 
And neither of those two things are particularly useful. I think as a sector, we're not just here to point out what's wrong. We are actually here to change it. And that has to start with us as leaders. So I agree with you. So I think that those feelings that we had are important and they do matter, but they are only important if they make us do stuff. Absolutely agree. I suppose that then leads us to kind of one of our our thoughts for today about really your own personal or professional reaction to the Black Lives Matter. What what did you feel about the whole agenda? What are you personally, professionally as an organisation, what are you guys doing? You know, in my personal life, this is a very loaded issue. So it's loaded for a number of reasons because, you know, I come from a mixed heritage family. Uh, The experience of racism and discrimination and hatred and violence is very close to home. You know, we've had direct experiences of that. You know, so my first reaction was one of pain and, and anxiety and worry for my friends and family and a real sort of sense of this feels like a tipping point. And, you know, that kind of fear of actually people are are really at risk you know I bring up my children to understand the notion of privilege and racism and we talk about them my children are very young I've always sort of wondered sometimes am I going too far do you know I don't you know I don't want them to feel like you know they can't enjoy their own lives as children who are who are privileged but I, I I also don't want them to not know that Um, So when the Black Lives Matter thing came along, you know, my daughter particularly was completely overwhelmed by it. And it and it felt really important moment in her understanding and learning. And I was really struck by how far thinking she is as opposed to I am as a 45 year old woman. And that was very striking. So personally, it's been a big deal in my household and um, it continues to be a big deal in my household. I think at work, we had a, you know, we're a small organisation. I think it's fair to say that we're not the most diverse organisation and we have a small number of black staff. I, I suppose my first thing was to acknowledge this with the team that this had happened and to create the space to think and talk about it. And we had a very painful conversation, you know, and again, you know, black colleagues feeling really worn down, you know, exhausted by it. And then we're sitting there going, are you okay? And actually think it's really difficult to, you know, for them to feel really cared for and supported in that situation because they've heard it before, you know, so bearing that in mind, I I was very cautious about it not feeling performative, that I shared a depth of how I was feeling, we set up initially a um, equality and diversity group and the group members very quickly said, no, we need, this is anti- about anti-racism. So we focused on that. And we've got a programme of works we're working on. We're co-producing a statement. And I was very clear that we didn't want to put anything out on social media very quickly because I felt like we needed to really think internally about what we meant by these words and did you know could I look at every member of staff and say they've resonated with this and they're going to stand by it and I felt that like there was work to be done so we're in the middle of that work now it continues to be very painful and I go into these meetings every time feeling feeling like I need to be humble feeling like I need to be open feeling like I need to lead the charge because you know I'm the boss Then we set about a number of other things too. You know, we spoke to our board about it. Our board were incredibly supportive. You know, we've had a number of reflection groups. So I very quickly, I've got a great group of peers around me, you two and others, where I could, you know, safely explore and talk about this stuff. So took that opportunity and very quickly felt that was 
incredibly important. And in the mental health space, we've actually set up proper kind of uh, reflective learning sets. Um, there's about 18 mental health chief executives and we're divided up into smaller groups to do some of this reflection together. And some of that is about the fact that we in mental health absolutely have always known, or certainly I've always known, that racism can equal mental illness. Mm. And there is a direct correlation. And so we feel that it's not just about our internal learning and shift into being an anti-racism organisation in a, in a true form, but also that we know that if we don't actually deal with this, then we're making a large proportion of our people mentally ill. There's a lot of the, that reminds me quite a lot of some of the conversations we've had at Shelter and that, you know, if we're a social justice organisation, which we absolutely say we are, then anti-racism is something that is absolutely intrinsic to being a social justice organisation. You know, we have to recognise that we've got a lot of work to do then to even be the social justice organisation that we claim to be. And there's that dichotomy as a leader isn't there because you were talking about um you know so I'm the boss I have to lead the charge but you also have to be humble completely and there is that kind of it requires a really particular skill set as a leader I think to do both those things well one of the things that's come through is that we we there is an ecosystem that needs to be changed there's a this has to be bigger than our individual organizations the thing that I suppose brought all of us into a sector is that need to create a society that's fair for all. But what's, come, what's coming through is as leaders, we owe it to society that we fix this problem, which means in some sense, our mission should be bigger than what our organizational mission is. How do we, A, see this as a bigger mission than just our individual organisations? B, who holds us accountable? That is such an important question. And actually, I define myself as a civil society leader because I do see that kind of bigger piece. My specialism is mental health. But I know that it exists within a complex ecosystem of so many other factors. And therefore, I, I feel personally that I feel that my role as a charity leader is to always have your eye on your own thing, but an eye that's sort of roaming around all the time on what the other issues are. I've always felt that connection is really important. And also the politics of all of this stuff is so important. I think there is something about that that social responsibility that is signed into our, you know, that is weaved into our job descriptions. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes when I see chief execs of charities or leaders not taking that mantle, it always surprises me. I was so relieved when we did our when we made the state our statement at Shelter in support of Black Lives Matter, which um, happened because our black staff really demanded it of us and demanded that it should not just be performative. But I was very relieved that our board didn't say, this isn't really about housing yeah. or homelessness. I, I do know that there were conversations like that with quite a few boards around the sector. And so I, I really agree with what you're both saying, that as civil society leaders, we believe in something wider than our individual causes. And I agree we have a role. We have a responsibility to try to change the world we live in. But when you said it's 
in the job description. Actually, literally, it isn't. Not in mine. The accountability point that Tessie raised, though, who holds us accountable for that stuff, is the right question because it isn't actually in our job description. So... Yeah, and I think, you know, it's really interesting because I would like to see it in the job description. I would like to see it as much more of an accepted fact of civil society leadership. I guess one of the ways I feel I'm held accountable is by my peers. And I think I've developed a group of peers around me who help me with that, who hold me to account, who challenge, who will ask me, well, what are you thinking about this? Have you engaged with that campaign? Or, you know, where, what's your position? And I feel like that happens very informally. But the issue of accountability, I think, is really tricky because our boards do, and because obviously the Charities Act, etc., the whole notion of lobbying and all of that kind of stuff, I think boards do become very anxious about in many respects. Yeah. You know, I, I'm very aware that actually to be an activist leader is also to engage in something that's quite risky. This could also be part of the privilege of being a leader where with every privilege must come responsibility. We all hold privileged jobs. There should be, should there be an element of responsibility that says actually we demand more. We the people, even if it's not in your memats or if it's not in your uh, JD, but we, the people, demand that with your privilege, you owe society the responsibility to always seek to fix society. Well, you know, it's sort of sneakily put into our mission and our values, isn't it? We, I think, as organisations, we sort of sneakily put in there, you know, something about our values of courage and bravery and that mm -hmm. we're here to challenge the, you know, in my, in, my, in my situation, you know, the equality and justice around mental health. And so that it's a given in order to do that, you have to be robust and challenging you know and Akiva I think have done a really great job of leading the charge and, and thinking about Definitely. you know how do we marry all of this stuff up together you know Vicky really helps us to think about how do you bring together what is essential in as part of our roles around that activism piece and the governance that often challenges our ability to do that legally so I think I absolutely 100% agree with you, Tessie, that we are in very privileged roles and with that privilege comes responsibility. And there's also relative privilege within that as well. So there are privileges that larger, more wealthy organisations have, for example, that others don't. There are privileges that white organisations or white-led organisations have that black or black-led organisations sometimes don't. Yeah. So I think we need to get our house in order as a sector but I also wouldn't like to run away with the idea that as a sector, as a whole, at the moment, we are carrying out those responsibilities. Because I, frankly, I don't think we are. I think no, some really. within the sector yeah. are striving to. And I agree with your shout out to Vicky at Kibo there. I think she is, is trying to get the sector. And so are people like Sue Tibbles at Sheila McKechnie as well trying to get the sector to accept the responsibility that comes with our privilege as leaders. But as a whole, I think the gravitational pull of conservatism with a small c, of the establishment is what I mean, I guess. I mean, and I There's think a, we're part of the establishment and that that is a real risk to 
us fulfilling that responsibility that you're talking about Sarah. I think that goes along with the complacency that I was talking about earlier on which is you know for a long time I would say for the last decade I'll just explore that you know in order to achieve change in policy there's been a shift in the way charity leaders do business so we we used to have the idea of we'd be in two separate tents on the same camping field and then we've started to share a tent for quite a long time and by sharing the tent with government and other decision makers that can muddy the waters around you know really that, oh, that advocating you know and it and I think we've all allowed that and seen that happen mm-hmm. and I've seen it happen in some senses over the last six months in a way that I think has really amplified those routes to influence etc and so I think that there are some of us around the the sort of charity space that are saying you know look it's time to leave the tent and probably go and camp in another field so I think that the time certainly for me has come where that really needs to be absolutely at the heart of some of the decisions about how we operate as an organization both of you have you ever considered your own privilege and how you've seen your own privilege kind of play out and would you could you give share any examples Oh, yeah. Um, so I think the time probably that that happened, I was most challenged about that was actually when I was at Women's Aid and it was in conversation about the relative privilege of me and my organisation compared to a much smaller organisation led by and for women of colour who were victims of um, violence. And I struggled very profoundly with that conversation. I found it incredibly difficult to fully accept what I was being shown about that my organisation's relative privilege and the duty that we therefore owed to that other organisation. And because I felt in a vulnerable place, I don't mean vulnerable because I was under attack or anything like that. Mm. I mean vulnerable literally because I was worried about my organisation. Because of that, I really, really struggled to accept what I think now, several years on, having processed that, I'm not joking, I've processed that conversation regularly over years because that's what, when something really challenges you in that way and you feel yourself resisting, Sometimes it does take years to really learn the lessons of it. I think my, from my personal life, my biggest example would be as a child. So I, my sister was adopted and she was half Bangladeshi and half Filipino. And I was on the bus with her. She was seven years younger than me. So I was like looking after her. And somebody on the bus made a really disgusting racist remark about her. But that was my first realisation of privilege ever, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a child, I, I was brought up to really understand my own privilege, even though I was born into poverty. I wasn't born into the same poverty that my grandparents had been brought born into, for instance, which was, you know, something on a on a different level. And so my my parents and my grandparents would always say, you know, some of the basic things that I took for granted, they didn't have, you know, toilets, sh- shoes, food. But I, I think a recent example is actually, a, again, a professional example. Well, well, I'll give two. The first one is um, a very good colleague of mine who, you know, we're close, um, we work really closely. I really respect him. He's a man of colour, um, a psychiatrist. We were talking about, and this is about 
two and a half years ago, a joint, you know, project that we were working on. And, and I wanted us to use really assertive language. We were sort of encouraging the Royal College of Psychiatry to use the word racism in their statements about the consequences of racism. And they, they were, you know, resistant. It's really, you know, the R word, as people were saying at that time. And I was getting really frustrated because I was saying, would you, that is what it is. Why, why aren't we using the words? And I remember my colleague turning to me and said, it's easy for you to say. And I was so shocked by that. And what he meant was, he's been using that word all his life. Mm-hmm. And he's been told how awful he is for doing it and how, how awful it makes everybody feel. And, you know, using the race card, you know, all of this stuff that he's had to endure. And then I come along and say, we absolutely need to be using that word in every conversation we're having. It needs to be written down in our position statement and so on. And of course, I don't have to bear the consequences of that. So whilst I think I know that from my mixed heritage and all of that kind of stuff, does it, it doesn't give me permission. Uh, again, it's that not centering yourself, but equally recognising that I will always have the privilege of being an ally. And then the second example, and this was really powerful, I went to San Francisco a couple of years ago on my own for a bit of work. I had a little time before I had to come home. So I got on a ferry and went over to Alcatraz and had a little bit of a wander around and um, brought my children back. What I thought was quite funny at the time, Now, bearing in mind my daughter would have been about eight. And on this sign, it says, um, we will provide you food, water and shelter. Everything else is a privilege. And I showed it to my kids and my daughter literally looked me in the eye and said, mum, you know very well that all of those things are a privilege because not everybody in the world has those. Mm-hmm. And I literally went, oh, dear God. Oh, my word. I, I thought my head was going to fall off and explode because I just thought she's so right. And the issue of pri- privilege is is pretty much in, in the fabric of everything, everything. And I'm very aware now of my privilege coming from a very working class background, coming to a situation where I'm a chief exec, I own my own home. I'm very aware of that. And sometimes that really, it sticks. What about you, Tessie? So I am really lucky. I suppose I see privilege in different ways. I'm really lucky to have been born into a very privileged family. Uh, My father was an ambassador. And so there was privilege all around us, me growing up. And I, but I think on the other hand, my mother was a head teacher. I suppose one thing that I learned very, very early on was that it was a privilege to be in the family that I was. It's really weird because you knew you had privilege from that word was a word that I literally grew up with because I was constantly reminded as a child that I wasn't entitled to what I had and I had to earn it. Like a typical example was during COVID. I, I intentionally did not ever maybe tweet a picture of my garden because I was aware not everyone had a garden. And therefore though, Life was great. I had my own space. I, I can work from here forever if I have to. I, I'm, pay, I'm aware that's not everybody's case. And therefore, it's almost always remembering, almost always being aware of your privilege, but also are seeking a way to share that privilege, which is kind of going to lead on to my next question. But before I ask that question, I'm going to share an example of sharing of privilege. So I have always 
personally worked with or loved a certain number of brands. And for many years, various brands have always asked me to work with them in an official brand capacity. And as a result, I will get some benefit like uh, income. And I've always felt really, really uncomfortable with this. Firstly, because I know I'm privileged to have a great job and I have an income and it just didn't feel right. So I've always said no. This year, it kind of made sense. I thought, do you know what I'm going to do? Right. Finally, I found one of the brands. I thought, you know, I love your values. And I presented to them this option. I would be a brand ambassador if all of my, this, all of the monies, that's any commission that's due to me, whatever is due to me, if I can gift it to various charities. It took them a while to think it through because they'd never done a partnership like that. And finally, they said yes. And to me, that was, just being able to do that was, I'm so excited about that brand. I've been shouting about it all of last week. Finally, I get to be able to to do this. It's again, using that privilege of having people say, we want to give you this. And I'm saying, actually, don't give it to me. I want to share that privilege with someone else. Which comes to my question, how can we share privilege more? Well, I mean, one of the things that I'm always sort of reflecting on is that notion of, um, you know, it's the Malcolm X thing about recognising the power in everybody. I really struggle with the word empower. It doesn't feel right. But there's something about recognising the power um, in others. It's about giving people that space, sharing the privilege of space, sharing the privilege of of leadership and decision making. And so I like the idea of distributed leadership, particularly in my work, in my organisation, as a way of sharing that privilege. You know, so having those kind of really systems and structures around that is quite important but I think there is a there is a ethical and deeply moral question there which is you know how do we within the context of our own lives live out those values in a very deep and meaningful way because as you were talking there using that example um I I was thinking god um the privilege of being offered something and the privilege of being able to turn down that money for you, you know, and thinking about all of those things. So it's, it's very different for everyone. You know, I think there, there are some things that we can put in a code of practice and a, a leadership manual about how we can do this. But I also think it's deeply personal and ethical yeah. and moral. And there's something that you as an individual have to really work out. Yeah. And face up to what your privilege is and face up to what the obstacles are that, that stop you from sharing that privilege. So I spent quite a lot of time as a feminist trying to get men to accept the idea of male privilege and the idea of unearned rewards, I think, is very difficult for people to accept. And talking about our dads. So my dad had a great saying, which is, you're not special, you're just lucky. I grew up in a very fortunate middle-class household and my dad was very successful. But he actually, even as a sort of white man of his generation, understood very well that there was a huge amount of unearned privilege that had got him to the place where he was. He really wanted us to understand that as children. It's very challenging as a parent because we're very prone to tell our children how special they are, but we do have to tell them a bit of how lucky they are as well. It's true. But I do think that 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 recognition in ourselves that of the level of unearned privilege that we have, if you manage to acknowledge that, then you automatically feel the need to share it. 
If I could ask you both one question, maybe Sarah, Sarah, I'll kick off with you. One practical way that anyone listening can share privilege. I think there is something about, so if you're a leader, you know, mentoring and those sort of, you know, very, those those relationships that are very much sharing, you know, your knowledge and experience uh, is really important and tangible. It, it's hard to know, actually. I think that's a really important question. I feel like I've got to go and really reflect on that because I mm. think it's something about a way of being and that's hard to be practical about. You know, this is about a philosophy, trying to really share that leadership yeah. focus, sharing the power in the organisation. Yeah. But how you do that, the mechanisms, how you do that, I think are very much about your ability to take responsibility and own your own privilege and, and yeah. you know, where it goes wrong. One of the quick ways I've intentionally picked up and I keep doing is to open up networks, like really making sure that it's so inclusive and I'm introducing people to people and I'm making those connections. And if I'm in a conversation and someone says, oh, I'm just looking for someone with digital skills, immediately I'm thinking, oh gosh, I'm going to. And it's that constantly because I know that I have that privilege of being having a platform that maybe I hear more than other people hear. I'm able to just open up those networks. Um, I think that's a brilliant one. And what, one of mine was just going to be consciously gather ideas from people who work at more junior levels in the organisation and then always credit the ideas. Well, that brings- oh, Sarah, thank you. What a great conversation. Yeah, I feel like I need to lie down. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks both. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you.